0: take your Bibles and turn them to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, as we continue our sermon series through Genesis, called Foundations. Foundations is an appropriate title for this series because Genesis really does lay down the foundation for so many of the critical doctrines of the Christian faith. And we've already seen in just the first couple of chapters Uh, In Genesis, the foundation for the doctrine of creation, uh, the doctrine of man, God's sovereignty. Uh, We've seen hints of the Trinity. Uh, We've seen foundations for the doctrine of the kingdom of God and the concept that uh, that God desires to have a people for Himself in a special holy land where God dwells with His people in intimate fellowship. Last week, we saw the foundations laid for the doctrine of covenant marriage. And in Genesis chapter 3, the foundations are laid for the doctrines of Satan, sin, and salvation. And this chapter is packed with so much crucial information. We're going to spend at least a couple of weeks uh, here today. Uh, uh, We're going to only look at the first few verses this morning. And so, I know I just asked you to sit down, but please stand back up. And without further ado, we stand in reverence for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1, God's Word says, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not either of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning. I know that the devil doesn't like any part of the Bible to be preached, but I suspect he has a particular hatred for Genesis chapter 3. Father, I pray that You would help me. It has been several days of spiritual warfare, of distractions, of temptations, to anxiety, of all kinds of distractions and spiritual attacks, because the devil hates this word and does not want it to go forth. Father, forgive me for my sin, for my weaknesses, and I thank you that what is about to unfold over the next few minutes is not dependent on my strength and my ability, but on the strength of God and the power of His word. Father, don't just help me, but help the hearers who also come this morning burdened with anxieties and fears and temptations and distractions. The devil wants to close all of our ears this morning to the truths of Genesis 3 where he is exposed. So, God, give us strength now to hear what the Spirit has to say. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Christianity is a a life that brings joy and peace and satisfaction and salvation, but sometimes what they don't tell you is that it also brings warfare. The moment you become a Christian, you get a target on your back. Scriptures say, Steve just read it a little while ago, we do not battle against flesh and blood. But against invisible powers and principalities and the forces of darkness. We have dark forces coming against us, but the Scriptures urge us to fight back. and So, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks about the schemes of the devil, that you, are, you and I are to take our stand against those schemes. And our text today in Genesis chapter 3 is an an essential component in our warfare training against sin and against the devil. Because the devil's playbook against the people of God is exposed right here, and it really hasn't changed much for the past few thousand years. You'll find in Satan's deceit of Eve the foundations for his attacks against you. I do not want us as a church to be ignorant of his designs. And so let us consider this morning as we open up the text, first of all, an invasion in the garden. There is an invasion in the garden. Now I want us to, to, to start actually, I know we started in chapter three, but but let's back up a verse here and look at chapter two, verse twenty five. Creation has been completed. God's made everything. God has made this good land, this paradise. The, the, The bounty of this land is just overflowing with God's provision. And He has placed the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in this perfect kingdom. The text says the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There is no shame in their relationship. There is no fear. There is only delight in God. ...and a delight in one another. And so things were good. But in just a few verses, things end up really, really bad. Now, how does that happen? And that takes us to verse 1, where we're introduced to the serpent. And we learn from other Bible passages... ...that this being is none other than the devil himself. In fact, you go to the very end of the Bible, book of Revelation... book of Genesis and Revelation make perfect bookends to the Bible. They complement one another... And Revelation chapter 12 depicts the devil again as a reptilian, serpentine figure, but now the snake has swollen to enormous proportions, and he is a gigantic, terrifying, devouring, ravaging dragon. The Apostle John identifies him as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Now... In Genesis 3, it appears that somehow the devil has either taken control of a a physical serpent or he has otherwise somehow disguised himself as a a serpent. Those details are not important, and and the text doesn't really lead us in that direction to to contemplate and speculate those things much, so so we won't. The the important thing to get is that Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 give us a snapshot of a beautiful and perfect creation that is good. And, and the serpent would have been among the creatures made in those prior chapters a part of that good creation, something, something not inherently evil. And so the entrance of evil into the world is to be seen as an intrusion, as an invasion, not as something that has always existed. This, this runs against the notion of dualism. The idea that from eternity past there has always been evil and there's always been good and that both sides are relatively equal and they've been forever duking it out against one another. That's important to know because many people see Satan in a a dualistic kind of way, as some sort of dark version of God and on his level. Genesis chapter 3 paints a picture of the serpent as simply part of the created order text says he was made. He is inferior to and under the sovereignty of the Creator. Evil is not all-powerful, and evil is not eternal, but it is dangerously parasitic. Scripture teaches later on that Satan was a good angel gone bad. Genesis 3 tells the story of a world gone bad, and good people gone bad. Evil, like a parasite... And latches on to that which is good, seeking to twist and pervert it. That means that humanity and the world as it is today are actually not in its natural state, but in an unnatural condition. Sin has polluted and spoiled the perfection of creation. So the story starts with an outside invasion coming into the garden, which then leads to warfare in the garden. And the serpent launches an attack on Eve... ...and his war strategy really unfolds in, in, in three phases. And, and the first phase is to cast doubts on God's faithfulness and God's word. Look at verse 1. The serpent says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, I find it very interesting that right off the bat... ...even before the serpent asks his question he avoids the use of God's covenant name. In Genesis chapter 1, God is identified as Elohim, which speaks of God's might and God's power. But in Genesis chapter 2, when the narrative focuses on God's special, loving relationship with Adam and Eve, we see, for the first time, another name. The Lord God, and Lord should be in all caps in your Bible, Whenever you see it written that way, it's a a translation of the name Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim. And that special covenant name is associated with God's unchanging faithfulness and His mercy to His people. And, And in Genesis 2, we are introduced to that name in the context of the abundant, lavish, and rich blessings that God, in His love for Adam and Eve, are providing for them. But when the serpent comes on the scene, suddenly the name Yahweh disappears. The serpent only refers to God as Elohim, as if he is keeping God distant and at arm's length. As if he doesn't want to speak of God in terms of his faithfulness and his goodness. He doesn't want to remind Eve of that. And sadly, Eve imitates the serpent's speech. She herself follows the serpent's lead and refers to God simply as Elohim. And this seems to be a very subtle way that Satan is already leading leading Eve down a dangerous path in bit by bit increments. That's what this whole whole story is about, how, how, how he leads her along step by step, little by little. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Screwtape Letters, fiction book, but in there you've got the chief devil. Uh, what is his name? Uh, it's um, Screwtape. <laughs> and, he, and he writes to Wormwood. And, and Wormwood is like a junior demon, and he's giving, giving him advice on how to trip up humanity and ensnare people in sin. And he says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And so Satan begins his work suddenly, and the shadow is beginning to be cast on the faithfulness of the covenant God. Now Satan will be less subtle about this before too long. But also Satan is attempting to cast the shadow of doubt on the word of God. In the first two chapters, God's Word is seen as powerful and reliable and good, bringing forth a shower of blessings and many good things. And to live in accordance with God's Word is to live in safety and in freedom from death. And so it should not be a shock that one of Satan's chief strategies in his warfare against us is to attack our confidence in the Word of God. And so the serpent says, did God actually say this? And in this seemingly innocent question, Satan is smuggling in the notion that God's word is to be subject to man's judgment. And that's a very dangerous place to be. What's more, the serpent is leading Eve to question not just the the content of God's word, but the wisdom of what he has said. Really, Eve? Is that indeed what God said? Surely not. That doesn't make any sense. Come on now, be reasonable. Now, the devil continues to attack in the exact same way today. Did God really say that in His Word? Uh, Do you really believe that God has said that people should not have sex before marriage? Really? Is that what He said? Uh, Did God really say that marriage is exclusively between one man and one woman? Oh, you've got to be kidding me. How can you be so backwards and so unsophisticated as to just blindly believe what God's Word says? How can you put your confidence in God's Word alone? We're in the 21st century, after all. We, We need something more than that. Not long ago, a major preacher in a major church right here in the Atlanta area, if I said his name, almost all of you would know who he is. In a recent sermon, he he poo-pooed the idea that the Bible should be the foundation of our faith. He actually made fun of the notion that we would say, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. He he says that though the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, that that maybe that's good for kids, it's not good for adults, and we don't want to rest our whole weight on something just because the Bible tells us so. He says, that's where our problem begins. That's a pastor talking. Someone who is supposed to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A minister of the word of God. And my concern is that thousands of people are going to listen to that sermon. And they're going to minimize or even discard the only weapon that believers have to defend themselves against the schemes of Satan. When Paul writes to the Ephesian church and teaches us about engaging the devil in spiritual warfare, he gives us just one offensive weapon to fight back with, and that's the Word of God. Paul calls it the sword of the Spirit. Author of Hebrews says that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. And the Word of God is not just for believers. 2 Timothy 3 says that the Scriptures make one wise for salvation. 1 Peter 1 says people are born again through the word of God. Romans 10 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And Jesus elsewhere speaks of the word of God as beneficial to all. He says in Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And how do we know the words of Jesus? We know them from the Bible. And it is unbelievable to me that any preacher would seek to disarm us in such a way to remove from our arsenal the sole weapon that we have to take on the serpent and the powers and the principalities that are, that are coming against us. And so, we find that today, just like in the garden, the battle for the priority of the Word of God is waged in subtle ways, and even churches fall for it. The serpent says, has God really said? And we say, well, maybe He did, and maybe He didn't. And then, we find ourselves standing in judgment of the Word of God, and and like Eve, we then fall ...into the clutches of the serpent. Phase one of Satan's battle plan... ...casting doubt on God's word and God's wisdom. Phase two, downplaying God's generosity and kindness. Again, verse one, did God actually say... ...you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice Satan's trick. There is a distortion of God's word here. And the nature of the distortion is to twist God's word backwards... Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, is that what God actually said? No. That's not even close to what God actually said. God actually said virtually the opposite. You go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 to see what God said. God said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And so we must consider the serpent's question against the backdrop of all of Genesis chapter 2, which focuses on the incredible goodness and kindness and generosity of God. He has lavishly poured out an overflowing bounty of provision on Adam and Eve in this garden of delight. And yet the serpent, in his craftiness, is leading Eve down a path. He is guiding the conversation away from God's goodness and provision and kindness. He doesn't want Eve to focus on that. He wants to minimize the abundant provision of God, and he wants her attention to be fixed on the prohibition. Now, now we all have a propensity for this, don't we? If you have little kids, you see this manifest early in life. You can put a little child in a room, filled with all kinds of toys and books and entertaining things and gadgets and you can say now son you can play with and enjoy all the things in this room but that one thing on the coffee table that that porcelain vase you can't have that now what's gonna happen to that vase? the parents are laughing the non-parents are like i don't know what's, what's going to happen crash we are just like mother eve you know eve did not say i wish she would have said this she did not say actually serpent you're wrong god has given us more trees to eat from than we know what to do with isn't that great This place is just incredible. It's overflowing with stuff for us to enjoy. Isn't God good? Isn't God wonderful in His grace? Sadly, that's not what she says. And you can see the next incremental step in her downfall in her response in verse 2. Look with me there. And the woman said to the serpent... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now you see, the, the, the focus of the conversation is turning not towards the bounty of God's provision, not towards His blessings and generosity, the conversation is turning towards His restriction. What's more, not only does she downplay the generosity of God, but she exaggerates the restriction of God. Look what she says again. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Did you catch the exaggeration there? God never said anything about not touching the tree. And so we've gone from questioning God's word to distorting God's word, even, even adding to God's word. And in the distortion, Eve is falling into the serpent's trap and is making God seem more restrictive than he actually is. God it's just God's so mean that you just brush up against the tree and zap! Instant disintegration. Can't even touch it, lest you die. But God never said that. And so Eve keeps taking these incremental steps towards the dark side. And at the core of her problem is her loose grip on the Word of God. She entertains doubts about God's Word, and with Satan's encouragement, she distorts the Word of God. And and when that happens, her vision of God becomes distorted. God's no longer the kind, benevolent, holy, generous God. Instead, God is becoming stingy, and unfairly restrictive, kind of miserly. And as the story unfolds, Eve moves away from a place of thanksgiving to a place of discontent. That's how the serpent worked in the garden. That's exactly how he works today. And I wonder if there is anybody in this room right now falling for that aspect of the serpent's attack. If there are some of you here who are struggling with thanksgiving, God has blessed you and has done so much in your life. In fact, He's given every single person in this room so much to be thankful for. We are are surrounded by so much of the kindness and generosity of God. If you have children, that's kindness. If you have enjoyed a meal in the past 24 hours, that's kindness. If you have a Bible, that's kindness. If you have a church family, that's kindness. If you have had an opportunity to serve somebody in a ministry, that's kindness. If your lungs just filled up with oxygen to keep you on the, on the planet a moment longer, that's kindness. Kindness. If you've had an opportunity to see the strength of God manifested in your weakness and suffering, that's kindness. If you're here this morning as a born-again person who is going to heaven and not to hell, then know that he has done this for you, Ephesians 2 says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God has been lavishly kind to us in all of these ways and so much more. And yet sometimes we are blind to all of those things and we focus on the thing that we cannot have more than we enjoy and praise God for the things that we do have. Sometimes we are bitter and we are depressed and we are angry about those things that God is withholding from us and we begin to believe that God is not kind but that he is overly restrictive and that attitude pushes out thanksgiving and gratefulness. And when that happens, be warm, for we have given the devil a powerful foothold in our lives. Indeed, a lack of thanksgiving is the doorway to idolatry. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, And then what do they do instead? They exchange the truth about God for a lie. And what's the lie? The lie is that there is something better for you than what God has for you. That if you want real freedom, you've got to get God out of the picture. That's where all this is headed in Genesis 3. Phase one of Satan's battle plan, casting doubt on God's faithfulness and God's word. Phase two, downplaying God's generosity and kindness. And phase three, denying God's judgment and sufficiency. Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So we've moved from doubting God's word to distorting God's word to now just flat out denying God's word. And and it's interesting... The first doctrine to be boldly denied in recorded history is the doctrine of judgment. And that bold denial continues today. The serpent's seductive voice is hissing, you shall not surely die. That that, that voice is ringing as loud as ever in the hearts and minds of people everywhere. The modern world hates and despises the doctrine of hell. Sometimes it's lampooned and made fun of. Other times the doctrine is is softened. Uh, Sometimes the doctrine is just plain avoided. There, There are churches that won't talk about hell because it's uncomfortable and it scares people away. Well, Jesus is all about accepting people and not judging, people say. And yet, it is Jesus Christ himself who says that if you disregard him, then you must depart from him and go where? "...into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels." The serpent conceals the judgment from Eve. But he does more than that. He wants Eve to think that sinning against God... ...will not only not lead to something bad happening... ...but it will also lead to something good happening. Verse 5. "...for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened." And you will be like God Knowing good and evil Now the tragedy here Is that Eve Is already like God She was more like God than any of us In this room As a sinless image bearer She reflected the beauty and the holiness And the goodness And the integrity of God But the gist of Satan's temptation Is to ascend to the heights Of Godhood itself To be on God's level the serpent is saying to Eve that God is holding back from you something that is that actually is for your good he's holding back something from you that's actually for your benefits God does not love you God does not care about you God's afraid of you he's afraid of what you will become that you'll be on the same plane as as him if not more He's not trustworthy. Elohim is not as good as you thought he was. The name Satan means accuser. And the beginning of Satan's accusations are leveled at God himself. And if he can get you, if he can get you to entertain accusations that call into question God's goodness and character and trustworthiness, guess what? You are wide open to falling headlong into sin. But there's another accusation that is implied, it's a more subtle accusation, and it's the notion that God is not sufficient for man. Fellowship and union with God is not enough. God is not sufficient to satisfy you and give you what you really need. You must reach past God and grab something else to fully have life and pleasure and satisfaction and meaning. And every time you are tempted to sin... I'm talking about you now, not just Eve. Every time you are tempted to sin... I don't care if it's a temptation to pride or porn. If it's anger or anxiety. At the core of the temptation is the sufficiency of God. Is His Word sufficient? Are his ways sufficient? Is his very being sufficient for all of your needs? And, my beloved brothers and sisters, whenever you and I willfully sin against God, we answer that question with a resounding no. We say, God is insufficient for this moment, for this time, for this situation. Maybe God is what I need most of the time, but not right now, not in this moment. I know those ugly words usually don't go through your head when you sin, but that is exactly what you and I are doing when we sin. We are denying the sufficiency of God for our life. And at the the root of the test of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is whether or not Adam and Eve will trust what God says is good and bad, right and wrong or whether they themselves will abandon the wisdom of God and they determine what is good and what is evil apart from God. When God says, this is the path to take, and we turn around and go a different way, we have rejected God's notion of good and evil. We try to become sovereign instead of God. And therefore, sin at its root is, as D.A. Carson says, the de-godding of God. Genesis 3 is not simply about breaking a single rule, it's about revolution. I don't want God to be at the center, I want to be at the center. And so we've seen an invasion in the garden, which leads to warfare in the garden, which leads to defeat in the garden. By now Eve has spent so much time listening to the lies of the devil. She becomes tantalized by sin. She really believes this is what she needs. And so, verse 6, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And so she has joined Satan in revolt against God. Now, what about her husband? Where, where has he been the whole time? And sometimes people think about the story and they regard Eve as this evil woman who somehow deceives poor, innocent Adam into eating the fruit. Steve and I were laughing about this the other day. Like like Adam is is out somewhere, just minding his own business. Adam is just innocently, piously worshiping the Lord. And suddenly, just Eve shows up and says, Hey, Adam, try this! And Adam starts eating the fruit and then suddenly he realizes this the forbidden fruit and he's like, "No! Eve, what have you done?" But that's not how it went down. Look again at verse 6. Every word here is important. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Friends, to me, this is the saddest and most pathetic part of the whole story. We are given the picture of a husband who is totally passive, who has totally failed himself, his wife, and his God. New Testament gives us some interesting insight in 1 Timothy chapter 2. uh, The Apostle Paul writes that Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. Now, isn't that interesting? They both sinned. They both did wrong. But Paul is harder on Adam. He wasn't deceived. He, more so than his wife, understood exactly what was going on. Adam knew this was a revolution against God, against a kind and generous and loving and trustworthy God. Maybe Eve fell for the lies and began to believe things that were not true of God, but Adam was clear-headed and clear-thinking in this as as he's standing in the background letting his wife engage this dangerous enemy like a coward he knew exactly what was going on and he didn't lift a finger to stop it and so now the world is plagued with sons of adam who are passive husbands hating their wives and not properly leading them spiritually and building into their life as they should And I've been guilty of that too. Adam was the one who had received direct revelation from God in Genesis chapter 2. Eve did not. Adam was to be, in a sense, the first prophet. Responsible for passing on and upholding the word of God. It was his responsibility to confront and contradict the serpent in a prophetic role and say, You say this serpent, but thus saith the Lord. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But Adam does not do that. He fails as a prophet. Adam was also charged to be a priest in the garden temple. Chapter 2 says that Adam was to work, literally to guard, to guard and keep the holy sanctuary of Eden. And instead of crushing that little skull, that little snake skull when he saw it, Adam instead allows impurity to invade the temple and he allows he and his wife to fall into sin and spiritual uncleanliness. Adam has failed as a priest. Adam was also charged with kingly dominion over creation. He was to rule over creation and have dominion over the world and have dominion over the animals as God's vice regent. And yet instead of having dominion over the beasts... Here, Adam allows himself and Eve to be placed underneath a serpent following its lead. Adam has failed as a king. And whereas the garden was full of life and joy, Adam's failure has unleashed pain and death. Sin, like a spiritual virus, has corrupted all of creation. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin... So death spread to all men, because all sinned. And a few verses later, it says, By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And at this point in the story, Adam deserves to be immediately cast by God into the eternal fire of hell and incinerated for his treachery against God. But the story plays out to the first-time reader in a somewhat unexpected direction. Verse 7 The eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That signifies the sense of guilt and shame that sin brings. And then verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God is coming after them. And I can't blame them for hiding. But God is not coming to smite them off the face of the earth. In fact, notice what God is called in verse 8. Look what name finally returns to the narrative. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the faithful, merciful covenant God has come. That name was gone during the entire conversation between Eve and the serpent. But we are reminded now of a God who, yes, hates and judges sin, but nevertheless loves to lavish mercy on undeserving rebels. And even now, in God's response to their sin, we are given a clue to God's good intentions. He opens his mouth, God opens his mouth, and speaks a word with his voice. The same voice that shapes galaxies... That same voice uh, can speak just a word... ...and Adam would be totally destroyed in an instant. But he does not speak that word. Instead, God calls to the man in verse 9... ...and says, where are you? And in that moment... ...we catch a glimpse of something very important... ...that is further developed later on in the Bible... ...is that man in his sin hides and runs from God. And if man is to be saved... God must come after man. Only through God's initiative can man's relationship with God be restored. Man severed the relationship with God by trying to rise up and become God. And as the Bible story unfolds, we discover that God restores the relationship by stooping down and becoming a man. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, we see the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Most people skip genealogies. Don't do that. They're very important. They're very relevant. And Luke traces the genealogy all the way back to Adam, and he calls Adam the Son of God. And immediately after that, going into chapter 4, Luke demonstrates that Jesus is the superior Son of God. And he comes to save wayward children of Adam by launching a counter invasion on an earth that has been spoiled by sin. And Jesus' invasion does not begin in a beautiful, peaceful, comforting paradise. Instead, he invades a rough, barren, inhospitable wilderness. In Luke 4, we have an invasion in the wilderness. And in Luke chapter 4, Verses 1 and 2, it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil. In Eden, the aggressor and the initiator of the conflict was the devil. But here in Luke 4, the aggressor is Jesus as the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to face the devil. And while Adam was surrounded by all the comforts and food of paradise, Jesus had no food. Verse 2 says, he ate nothing for 40 days, and he was hungry. This isn't a casual spiritual retreat. What we have going on here is warfare in the wilderness. And so in Luke 4, verse 3, the devil comes to him and says, if you are the Son of God. Now, at the end of chapter 3, Adam has just been identified as the Son of God. But immediately in chapter 4 now, the devil comes to Jesus. If you are the Son of God command this stone to become bread. Once again, the attack revolves around food. It revolves around trusting in the provision of God. And Jesus responds in a way that is superior to Adam. He does not deny the word of God. He does not distort the word of God. Instead, he pulls out the sword of the word and says, it is written. In other words, the Bible says... God says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus does not mess around. Satan launches three temptations, and every time Jesus comes back, declaring the pure, powerful, unadulterated, unfiltered word of God. Because unlike Adam. Jesus trusts in and relies on and declares the word of God. He is the perfect prophet. And in the next temptation, in, in Luke 4, verses 4 and 5, Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would but worship the devil. And unlike Adam, Jesus demonstrates himself to be the perfect priest, preserving the purity of worship. When he answers the serpent, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And in the third temptation, in Luke 4, 9-11, Satan tempts Jesus to abuse his kingly authority by throwing himself down from the top of the temple, forcing his servant angels to come and rescue him. But Jesus responds, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus knew. That although he had kingly authority and power, he did not have the right to exercise that power outside of the Father's will. Indeed, the whole life of Jesus is a life of one who is not grasping for power, grasping for godhood like Adam and Eve. But instead, his life is defined by great humility. And so, while Adam is defeated in the garden, Jesus experiences triumph in the wilderness... John Calvin writes that the Son of God voluntarily endured the temptations and fought, as it were, in single combat with the devil, that by his victory he might obtain a triumph for us. And so, Romans chapter 5 tells us that, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And Jesus' obedience that leads to sinners being made righteous is climaxed in his final hours. While Adam raised a defiant fist at God in the Garden of Eden and said to God, My will be done, plunging the world into death, Jesus Christ bows his head low before God in another garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and says, "...not my will, Father, but yours be done," opening us up to the path of life. And so Philippians 2 tells us that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It is on that cross where Jesus died that God's wrath towards sinners is satisfied. And so now, for all who turn away from their sins and by faith turn to Jesus, it can be truly said, you will surely not die. Adam tries to rise up for his own sake and be Lord, and he is humbled. Jesus stoops down low for the sake of his people, and what happens? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where Adam fails... Where you fail, where I fail, Jesus comes and triumphs on behalf of all who place their hope in the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king, the true and better Adam, the superior Son of God. Praise His name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You so much that You responded to the invasion of the serpent with a counter-invasion and sent Your Son into the world to rescue Your people from the clutches of the serpent. Father, for those of us who are believers, I pray that You would help us to be a thankful people, overflowing with thanksgiving and and gratitude for the, the incredible, abundant provision that You have given us in Christ. Father, help us to be a people that trust Your Word, that believe what You say, And that turn to You for the ultimate source of of satisfaction in life. You are sufficient. Father, I pray for those this morning who do not know You yet. And who are in a state of death. That even now, their eyes would be opened. And that they would see that You are good. And that they would call on Your name. And that they would be saved. In Jesus' name. Amen.